Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, traffic deaths were way up in Minnesota last year. Education Minnesota's Denise Speck on students returning to school amid the surging COVID crisis and Golden Gopher baseballer Randon Dowman. But first... State lawmakers are in the thick of redistricting, a topic that, if you listen to legislative and court hearings and read the press releases, makes most people's heads swim, their eyes glaze over, and causes some to want to run out of the room screaming. With that in mind, we offered M&N's Bill Werner a candy bar if he can explain it. Well, Scott, that's a pretty big assignment for a fairly paltry reward. But what the heck, here it goes. The U.S. takes a census every 10 years for a number of reasons, but one of the most important for Minnesota is to make sure district boundaries for the state legislature and the United States House of Representatives each encompass roughly the same population. That, while some parts of the state are seeing population increases and other areas are static or seeing declines. Now, granted, there are a lot of things that determine whether every citizen is equally represented in Congress or in the legislature. But one key item is whether each member of the Minnesota House and Senate and each member of the U.S. House represent roughly the same number of people. Where the politics enters in is how those boundaries are drawn. And that is the heart of redistricting. The unspoken objective of each political party is to include enough of its supporters in a given district to make sure its candidate is elected, but also to try to get any excess number of supporters included in another district to try to increase the chances of winning that one as well. If you extend that to the four points of the compass and expand it to eight congressional districts in Minnesota and 67 Minnesota Senate districts, each with two Minnesota House districts within them, You can see it becomes a complicated process indeed. There's all sorts of rhetoric about including groups of common interest or broadening the diversity of a district or including heretofore underrepresented populations. But the fundamental and competing objective of political parties remains to increase the chances of their candidates being elected. And redistricting is a powerful way to do that, which effects are felt for at least 10 years after each census. You can see why everything gets so uptight politically right about now. That tug of war between the political parties has in Minnesota resulted in deadlock. Lawmakers unable to agree on district boundaries for every decade except one during the last 50 years. And in each case, except that one decade, the decision on drawing district boundaries has fallen to the courts. In anticipation of that likely happening again in 2022, groups this week presented to a five-judge panel their competing proposals. Democratic interests outlined their plan. There can be no question, I think, that the Sachs plan promotes opportunity for minorities. Republican interests say their proposal, the Anderson Plan, preserves the unique interests of rural, suburban, exurban, and urban Minnesotans. An independent group termed the Cory Plaintiffs also pitched their plan, which among many other features would include the Red Lake, White Earth, and Leech Lake bands in one northern Minnesota legislative district. They operate eight casino resorts that are collectively the number one employer uh, for residents in this area. They're also bound together on socioeconomic and public policy issues like affordable housing shortages, physical and mental health problems, education and unemployment. 
We will leave redistricting of the Minnesota legislature for later discussion, but let's bring in Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz to put a finer point on redistricting as it applies to Minnesota's eight congressional districts, the congresspeople who go to the United States House of Representatives. Professor Schultz stresses... Where the population has been growing is in the Twin Cities, um, suburbs, and especially in the urban cores. You know, unlike previous you know, 50 years, St. Paul and Minneapolis are gaining in terms of populations. Now, big it's, big it, change, big change demographically. Big change demographically, and it's growing much more rapidly compared to rural Minnesota. So in general, the Twin Cities and the suburbs um, are going to be, let's say, the winners um, in terms of, of, let us say, any redistricting that occurs. And what this is going to suggest is a few possibilities here. For example, um, we might very well see the first congressional district, which is along the southern part of the state, um, that may have to um, grow a little bit further north in order to be able to maintain enough population. Um, eighth congressional district, which is includes the old Iron Range, also is facing challenges. It might have to grow. But I think the two districts that I think are going to be most interesting to watch are the sixth district currently held by Republican Tom Emmer and the second congressional district held by Angie Craig. Tom Emmer's district is kind of this wide sweeping district that kind of goes from the northern suburbs up through St. Cloud and almost kind of a hook around the Twin Cities. And as population has shifted there, um, we could see um, a lot of possibilities, which we don't know yet. You know, how much, for example, might the 7th or 8th district might have to grow um, and and maybe move into that district? How much does Tom Emmer's current 6th have to maybe come further into the, um, let's say, closer to the suburbs of the Twin Cities? Angie Craig's district, which is clearly one of the most competitive um, congressional districts in the country, could be tremendously affected by this also again shifting just a few thousand votes could have a big impact on the election there's possibilities that with the right map she could get more of the twin cities vote more what leans democrat and then the first district representative hagedorn has won two very close elections Um, and with a change in the demographics in that district Again, shifting just a few thousand votes, uh, m- you know, moving the boundaries could have a big impact there. So there's actually several districts that I think could be dramatically affected. And with that current incumbents um, who could be affected by uh, the, the ultimate redistricting. That's Hamlin University political and legal expert David Schultz, who certainly deserves kudos for his explanation of redistricting. But Scott, what about me? Do I get the candy bar you promised? Well, Bill, about that, I was going to give you a candy bar, but as you were explaining all of that, I ate it. My bad. Maybe next time? Okay, you're the boss. Hmm. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. Throughout the state, Minnesota electric co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Change a light bulb, save some green. 
Just replace traditional light bulbs with energy-efficient bulbs and fixtures. If you're like most people, 20% of your home electric bills go directly to lighting. Every light we switch to one bearing the government's Energy Star label uses at least two-thirds less energy than older bulbs. Such a light will save more than $30 in energy costs over its lifetime. Brighten your environmental future from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Last year, Minnesota reached its highest number of traffic deaths since 2007, according to the Department of Public Safety. I spoke with the Department of Public Safety's Mike Hansen about this troubling trend. You know, Scott, I'm, I'm finding it, I'm finding it very difficult to find the right words because it's horrific, it's tragic, it's terribly sad, but it also makes me very angry. Um, that that we're seeing the types of things on Minnesota roads that we continue to see. The fact that we have over 100 more fatalities this year than we did last year is just completely unacceptable to me, as it should be to every Minnesotan out there. And we've got to find a way to come together and to make our roads safe for everybody. Nobody should be afraid to take that trip to the grocery store to drive home after work, or to take a trip up to the cabin just because of what's happening on our roads. That just isn't who we are. And, Mike, I know uh, it's difficult because there, there are efforts out there to try to cut down on some of these traffic deaths, but what do you suggest might be uh, one of the keys here? Oh, you know, Scott, that's a great question, and I really wish that I had the, 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 the one answer to give you. But uh, here's how I would sum it up. All of us as drivers, as soon as we get behind the wheel, we need to take a second, take a breath, put our seatbelt on, and then commit to driving smart and to driving safe. If, if we can just do that, we can end some of the foolishness that we're seeing out there, and we can share the roads the way the roads were designed to be shared. And all of our brothers and sisters and moms and dads and kids, all of us can get from point A to point B safely uh, without having to worry about some other driver making a really horrible decision. I know that we focus, uh, when we kind of do a year in review, sort of look at what happened here on a few major factors. Those are speed, alcohol, uh, distracted driving, and unbelted motorists. I don't think that there is such a thing as good news when we're talking about people dying, but do you see any sort of um, brighter spots in terms of numbers going in the right direction for for any aspect of this? Scott, when you talk about those four driving behaviors, um, one time is too many for any of those. It's just it's not acceptable anymore, and and nobody should should have to think about, um, you know, being killed when they hop in the car. You talk about speed. That was the number one driving factor for the increase in fatalities uh, in 2021. At least 162 of the fatalities were directly the result of a driver making a selfish or ill-informed decision to exceed the speed limit or to drive faster than the existing conditions allow. To put that into a little bit of perspective, that's 33% higher than we had in 2020 and 116% higher than we had in 2019. 
it's just it's unprecedented and and we have to find a way to to slow the ride curb the need for speed and drive according to the speed limit and the conditions speed is the one thing that makes every other mistake or bad decision worse it takes away time it takes away space and so uh, if if you're distracted or somebody else is distracted you don't have the ability to get out of that situation. And, you know, uh, distraction is, you know, if I, I look for one silver lining, you know, we're continuing to see those numbers uh, decline downward at, at a, a a slight level from year after year. So I give a lot of credit to the hands-free legislation that the legislature passed uh, three years ago or two and a half years ago now. Um, that is starting to make a difference, and people are starting to make those good decisions. But if you talk to any law enforcement officer out there or just drive on any roadway, we still see far too many people, you know, making that distracted decision. And we need to, to change that if we're going to change the trajectory that we're on as far as the number of, of Minnesotans being killed on our roads. You addressed this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but I do want to give you an opportunity to address our listeners directly. Um, if you have one message for folks that are that are hearing you today, what is your message to them with regards to safe driving? Please slow down. Please put your seatbelt on. Please plan ahead and never drive impaired. If you feel different, you drive different. If you feel different, don't drive. And never drive distracted. And whether it's that cell phone, whether it's the infotainment system that many of the cars have today, or it's a cheeseburger, whatever. Our roads are back to pre-pandemic traffic levels. They're, they're congested. They're busy. We need to pay attention. And I would just ask everybody to take one second and think about who you're sharing the roads with and how your one decision can have lifelong effects on the other drivers out there. If we can just commit to, you know, changing those four behaviors that you and I have talked about, Scott, we can end 2022 um, with nearly zero fatalities if we can just do those four things. So my, my, my message to your listeners is please think about what you're doing behind the wheel. And think about the consequences of making a bad decision. Thank you to my guest, Mike Hansen, with the Office of Traffic Safety. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Educators across the state are bracing for a spike in COVID cases following the holiday break. Tasha Radel has more. Coronavirus cases due to the fast-spreading Omicron variant will most likely race through Minnesota public schools in the next few weeks now that students are back in class. Joining me today is Denise Specht, president of the Minnesota Teachers Union. Obviously, the best outcome for the next couple of months is that all buildings stay open uh, with students and staff learning and working in person and safely. But that means that we all need to be following the CDC and the Department of Health guidelines for vaccinations, masking, social distancing, et cetera. I think, though, what we're seeing is that, um, you know, school boards and school administrators are the ones that are making the decisions for each of our school districts. 
and I'm not seeing really any changes from uh, you know what we saw at the beginning or at the end of last year or the beginning of winter break and now. Denise, as we know, Governor Walls currently doesn't have any peacetime emergency authorization, meaning no statewide mandates are in place. Is this concerning to you? Correct. I mean, right now, um, the the decisions are solely on the school boards and the the school administrators to make the decisions for each school district. Um, and what we were finding um, is too few districts were actually following. Uh, the CDC guidelines and um, the recommendations coming from the Minnesota Department of Health. And what we've been finding, um, no matter where we are in our state, is a revolving door of um, sick children and sick staff. Um, we see, um, you know, staffing shortages, substitute teaching shortages, um, and a lot of stress on school districts. Um, you know, things were very stressful uh, before the winter break, and I don't know if the state of Minnesota has found an army of of guest teachers or uh, people willing to, you know, drive bus in order to make sure um, that we can continue teaching and learning in a safe way. Throughout the pandemic, politics has really played a role in day-to-day decisions. Do you feel this has hurt some of our youngest learners? Well, it certainly has felt at times that the health and safety of, um, you know, Minnesotans, especially um, our youngest, um, is kind of like a political football right now, unfortunately. I never dreamed that keeping people healthy and safe and keeping our schools open would be so political. Um, But unfortunately, we find in places that is very much the case. Denise, as you know, the CDC has changed the quarantine recommendations uh, surrounding COVID-19. Is this concerning to you? Well, um, I think that we'll be running out of tests in a very short time. So, um, you know, that might be a moot point anyway. But I think the the question is, is, um, you know, were people even following the guidelines even before they changed? Unfortunately, we found in too many places people weren't following the guidelines. Um, so they've changed somewhat, um, especially, you know, if you think about, um, you know, asymptomatic people going back into the workplace or going back into schools without being tested. Um, you know, somehow we knew that they needed to be vaccinated in the first place, or maybe we didn't. I don't know. I think it's a little bit confusing, um, but I think we just have to remember to fall back on the, if you're feeling sick, you should stay home. Um, If you've got the sniffles or a sore throat, you should get a test. Um, And we need to do everything we can to make sure that we are um, returning back to school or returning back to work safely, which to me means a test. It was really hard to even think about what kind of an impact it was going to have on schools. I mean, because I knew that there were so many schools that weren't following the guidelines in the first place. But when I saw, um, you know, our friends in the health profession, um, you know, the Minnesota Nurses Association and other healthcare professionals who were, you know, a little bit worried or questioning the new um, guidelines, it does cause you to pause. You know, they're the ones that are working um, you know, in our healthcare facilities and in hospitals day in and day out. So when, when they get a little anxious, it does cause me to pause even more than, 
than I was in the first place. Thanks again to my guest, Denise Specht, president with Education Minnesota. And before I throw it back to you, Scott, we did reach out to the Minnesota School Boards Association for comment uh, about, you may recall earlier in the interview, when Denise said that she felt school boards weren't properly following CDC guidelines. We did hear back. Officials at the Minnesota School Boards Association say safety of students and staff is a top priority of school districts and school boards must balance community interests with CDC guidelines. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what father, What real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make them breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play, like, a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do, like, that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Golden Gopher baseball player Randon Dalman of Columbus, Wisconsin, has taken a unique path to the Twin Cities. He's played college baseball at Ohio University, at a junior college, at St. Louis University, and now Minnesota. Through his time as a college player, he started a nonprofit organization called Next of Can, which helps get athletic equipment to kids in the community who need it. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Delman about the project. I started Next of Can on 420 of 2020. Um, that was last year while I was in St. Louis. Um, I grew up in a real nice area, a little small farm town, so I didn't really, I wasn't really exposed to much going out of high school, and. When I got to college, I went to Ohio, which Athens was kind of not the best area. It wasn't the worst. Then I went to a community college called Triton College in downtown Chicago well, uh, in Cook County area. And that's when I was starting to get exposed to, like, you know, the harsh realities of life, um, what kids go through, the stuff that you see with them playing on playgrounds. They even have equipment to, you know, really enjoy the extracurricular stuff in sports. And then, like, also being in that you – you meet teammates that grew up in that area and like they tell you about their upbringing and you know just hearing some of those stories it kind of makes an impact and then I went to St. Louis and you know you just get exposed to more of those things and we were at a point in life where a lot of things were being said on wanting change um, and I wanted to make the change. Uh, We can all talk about it for as long as it can but until you take the actual appropriate steps of making that change there's there's time to talk and there's time to act and i just didn't want to be a bystander anymore so i started the charity next of can and then it went on a pretty long pause because i was at a spot where i was knew i knew i was going to leave st louis and the team and then i was trying to figure out my future of where i was going next so like i had to put that on pause while i was trying to figure out my life 
And then right when I got to the cities, the Twin Cities, everything picked back up and we started making uh, pretty big impacts right away. Um, my first month in the Twin Cities, we were able to help 156 athletes and uh, help them with their equipments and whatnot on their fees. And, you know, just off the top of my head, we were able to do it at an operating cost of 1055 uh, individual. Yeah. How how um, how does it work? How does how does the charity function and how are you able to uh, to to get uh, these kids uh, the stuff that they need? So it's a piece by piece operation. As we've been building, I've been learning more. Um, we're going to have a subscription way of making donations through our website. Uh, we take checks. We go through Venmo and PayPal. Um, usually they're just straight up donations. I also in the community, I meet up with a lot of people and I, I'll just come to them and be like, hey, I can impact this many athletes at this quote of a dollar. And like, you know, I'll give them multiple options so they can feel out all different price ranges. And often people are just like, okay, well, if I can see what you're doing and I can see where that money's going, then I'll donate. And then on top of that, like a big thing we take a pride in is that uh, every dollar that comes into the charity goes right back into the community. There's no, we're not taking any salary. It's hundred percent nonprofit. And all the operating expenses are covered by me. As you work, how do you get contacts and how do you know who to go contact? Uh, how do they get in touch with you? And and then how do you find out who needs uh, stuff? Because certainly there are all kinds of uh, young people who uh, are in need. So that's the thing. It's a lot of reaching out to local community members, um, individuals that have already been making impacts on it. When the hard the hard thing that I found was coming to a community that I didn't initially have connections. But once you get one connection, it kind of just branches throughout, throughout, throughout. And um, as I've gone, people start, as you start building your social platform, people start reaching out to you. We're right now putting in a Google form to where you can just go to our website, nextcan.org, and you'll be able to fill out like, you can recommend a program, you can recommend a team, you can recommend a family, you can tell them a little bit of backstory. And like, we have the survey that you fill out. And like, that's just a way we can go through and make applicants, you know, see what they need and what we can do about it. Um, but a lot of it has been word of mouth of like, hey, like I personally worked in this place. They need this, they need that. Like one of my best friends, he uh, worked in a school down in St. Louis and we do both the fine arts equipment and we do athletic equipment. And it was an after-school program. These kids are staying there, you know, like sometimes it's their only decent meal of the day and like whatnot. And they said they would really like some instrument like recorders and some cases and whatnot. And so we put together a little care package that we are gonna send to them in the next four weeks, get that down there. So they have the equipment that they think they need for after-school programs. And it's, everything is about just providing kids opportunities and like, outlets to express themselves. I mean, you take away extracurricular extracurricular activities and you have, I don't know, life can be pretty boring then. It's just, life is harsh. And so like when you can get these escape routes and express yourself through music or express yourself through, you know, physical exertion of activities. And I guess it's all big things that we do. So it's, it's a process that has multiple outlets of how we get our word around and um, how we receive who we need to help next. That's Gopher baseball player Randon Dowman with MN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That is going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.